The other thing I'll say about disclosure is that in the absence of data, people make stuff up. And that is such an important, just because you haven't said it doesn't mean people have started making all kinds of stories. So aren't you better off telling them the true story? Because the story they're going to make up is always going to be worse than the reality. Hello, my name is Ferina Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of Leaders Plus and the host of this podcast. A very, very warm welcome back. As you know, I'm setting up this podcast because I think we need to do more to support people who have children to continue to progress their careers. And today I have used the podcast as a chance to introduce someone who I have found extremely interesting for a while. It's Carol Robin. She is an author, Stanford academic and all-around expert on the art of relationships. And I've come across her work as I've read a book in a book club and that she's written Connect. And it's really changed my thinking, for example, so many of us have to negotiate hard, have difficult conversations when you come back from maternity leave and perhaps with your boss or with your colleagues. And she has changed my thinking in terms of how you can use those difficult conversations to strengthen relationships. I hope you get a lot out of the conversation. I certainly did. And if you want to hear more about these podcasts, then just head to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash podcast and you will find all the other episodes. Enjoy today's conversation. A very warm welcome, Carol, to the Leaders with Babies podcast. I am thrilled and very excited to have you here because you wrote a book that featured very highly on our book club list and I absolutely loved reading. Why don't we start with you telling us who you are, what you do for work and who is in your family? Thank you. So I'm Carol Robin and who's in my family is my husband of 36 years, my two children, my son of 34, my daughter of 32, and now my eight-month-old grandson of eight months. And I would say both my son and daughter-in-law are leaders with babies. (laughs) (laughs) And I have been a leader with babies, but kind of a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I also, what I do for work now is I'm the co-founder of an organization called Leaders in Tech, which is trying to shift the culture of the Silicon Valley by developing leaders that have much broader understanding of the fact that people do business with people, not with ideas or machines or products. And the so-called soft skills turn out to be the hardest. And we started it in 2017. And in fact, I just got back from the retreat that launched our fifth cohort of, of the year-long program. We also do four day standalone uh, programs. And I've got, and essentially I bring everything I taught at Stanford for almost two decades to the programs that we teach. And so that's what I do now. Mm, Very interesting. And you mentioned just before we came on air that you're having a massive focus on women in tech with that program, which I think is so brilliant because, well, women are just unbelievably underrepresented in tech. Exactly. Yes. Correct. 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 I mean, in our fellows program, we are committed to 40% women in our cohort. 
we've had over 1,200 applicants. We take 24 people at a time, 24 people a year. And let me tell you, the pool does not look the way the final cohort looks. We don't have 40% women applying. So the the uh, commitment and the and we're also committed. By the way, it's not for women; it's for all leaders in tech with a commitment to enough of a critical mass of women, so that they don't find themselves as an only or one of two people in you know the room of twenty four men. And it's also turned out that many of the men in our program have especially appreciated the fact that they had enough of an opportunity to learn side by side with so many women and understand a lot more about their world. Mm, I bet because we just cannot see what it's like unless we're exposed to people exactly. who are different lived experience. Exactly. exactly. And I'd say we also look for people in underrepresented groups, people of color and people of different sexual orientations. So yeah, the more what we know about the kind of work we do is that the more diversity along every dimension, because we tend to think of only the biggies, but the more diversity we have in a group, the more learning there is. Mm-hmm. And we're all about learning. Mm. Yeah, I find this as well. So we run fellowship program for leaders with babies, as you know, and it's very interesting. I keep you know, HRT leaders keep telling me, well, you should just make it very industry specific, put all the doctors in one room and all the engineers, but yeah. we have doctors and engineers and they absolutely love it. There's discussions happen that wouldn't happen unless you had that diversity of thinking. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I want to ask you all about it, but I think that's yeah. and it's slightly, well, then I can't ask the author of one of my favorite books about her book, which I want to do. So with them, um, I'm really interested in this. So I guess the reason why I picked up this book of yours is because yeah. I think there's something really important about connecting with others when you are a working parent, because you could very often have to negotiate and have those very tough discussions about how to maybe arrange flexible working or maybe a discussion yeah. with your partner, if you have one, about who is picking up the child from nursery when nursery calls exactly. that they have fever. So I feel like being a leader of a baby almost puts the flame, you know, it turns off yeah. the flame on yeah. the relationship yeah. challenges. Yeah, in my view. totally. Yeah, <laughs> um, I hope my partner is not listening to this podcast, but yeah, I do think that's what it does. So I just want to find out a bit more about it. And I know it's based on what you call the touchy-feely course at Stanford yeah. University. Yeah. Yes. How did you personally get into the topic of touchy-feeliness and relationships? Why do people who study technology at Stanford also want to join this course and read your book? Well, for starters, the course is actually called Interpersonal Dynamics. The students all call it touchy-feely. Emphasis on the feeling, not the touchy part. And it has been the most popular, most oversubscribed to course at Stanford for many decades. And I stand on the shoulders of the people who started it. I did not start it because I'm not a career academic. So when I arrived at Stanford a little bit on a lark because somebody who had been a member of my dissertation committee said, you know, you should go meet David Bradford, who's my co-author, because you'd be great at teaching this course that they need more people to teach. So that's how I ended up at Stanford. 
and teaching this particular course. Now, what happened next? So when I joined, we were the school was teaching three or four sections of 36 students. By the time I left in 2017, we were teaching 12 sections of 36 students. So the course continued to grow exponentially in popularity. And it now is often talked about by the alums as the reason to come to Stanford Business School. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of them have been known to say it was worth the entire price of tuition, which as you might imagine is not the school's favorite thing to have students and alums saying. So then the other, I think, thing that's important for your listeners to perhaps hear is that my colleagues and I hear back from our students 10, 15 years later. And what they say to us is we hear what might be predictable. This course, you know, has made me, you know, I just became a CEO. I'm pretty sure it's because of what I learned in this course. And we also hear, I'm pretty sure this class just saved my marriage. And we also hear, I just reconciled my relationship with my best friend who I hadn't talked to for a couple of years. And thank you for finally writing a book so that I could give my friend who never had the benefit of going to the Stanford Business School to learn all this. And we could actually use the principles from the book to reconnect. So maybe the other thing to throw in the mix here is that we'd been asked to write, David especially, he's written many books, And the two of us had been asked independently and together to write a book about this for years. And we had always said no. (laughs) And the reason we'd said no is that neither of us believed that you could learn how to be more interpersonally competent and connect with another person by reading about it. You actually had to go do something. And we were afraid that, you know, it would become one of those like, oh, that's interesting. You put it back on your shelf and nobody would use it. So the way the folks at Penguin Random House convinced us to write the book is they said, so how are you okay having these skills and competencies that thousands of students for decades have said was the reason to come to Stanford Business School and life-changing are the only people who get to learn this? And that's when David and I looked at each other and said, I guess we're going to have to write a book. Fair enough. That's and it's very actionable as well, isn't it? It's um, it's not their theory, but it's not too theoretical. Right. So one one element that really stuck out to me was about conflict. And mm-hmm. if I mm-hmm. remember it right, you and David explained how conflict yes. and challenging conversations are the yes. best opportunity to deepen yes. a yes. relationship. And that was quite challenging for me because when you're a new parent. You often walk into those tricky, uncomfortable discussions. Yes, yes. And I, yes. you know, our fellows uh, who are on our fellowship program, they often yeah. are scared of having a conversation with the land manager, having a tough conversation with a partner. But you're yes. saying it's the best opportunity to build a strong, yes. strong relationship. Yes. Can you say more about that? Yes. So, and before I dive into the specifics, I want to say that one of the reasons the course has so much impact, and we hope the book will, is that it challenges your thinking and your beliefs and assumptions. We call those mental models. You know, we develop mental models very early in our careers, but then we don't test them. 
we don't stop and wonder whether playing it a little safe and staying under the radar, which might have served us very early on, is still serving us. And that's true in all relationships. Relationships start on a on safer ground. And then we kind of get locked in on, oh, that's the only way we can always act, be with each other. And I'll also say that embedded in a difficult conversation is the opportunity to get to know each other much better. I learn so much more about you if you tell me what you're struggling with. And then I might be more open to telling you what I'm struggling with. And then maybe we, in knowing that about each other, we're able to build an even stronger relationship. And yet we deny ourselves the opportunity to go deeper because we're afraid. I used to have a former partner, as I said earlier, I'm not a career academic. And I, I was a consultant in a, part, in a firm. I was in sales and marketing and an executive. But I used to have a partner who used to say fear is an acronym for false expectations appearing real. And yet, I mean, I'm not saying that it's not unbased, but I am saying that until you test whether or not it's okay to have a conversation, then you don't ever know whether it is or not. I also want to say that I'm not sure I'd start down this path of developing myself in this area of becoming more interpersonally skilled by having the most difficult conversation possible with the most difficult person in my life. These are like anything else, you want to build muscles. And if we want to use the metaphor of becoming a better athlete, you don't go run you know, a marathon without actually training for it. And so it's a process of self-development. And there's a lot in the book about how to do that. Now, let's come back to your question about, uh, more specifically, about conflict in addition to allowing us to get to know the other person more also helps us stop and think more about what we're learning about ourselves. So, huh, I wonder why I am so upset about this. And instead of going into a reactive mode, there's an opportunity to also be somewhat reflective in the, if not during the process, after the process, and perhaps maybe even before it begins, like, oh, I've got to have this conversation. So it's sort of dreading it. Stop and think about, well, what is it that you're dreading? What are the beliefs and assumptions that you're holding about what will happen if you do? What do you want to look out for as you get into the conversation? If you find yourself really reactive in the moment, it's okay to say, oh, you know, I'm having a really difficult time where this is going. And, you know, I'd like to take a moment, just pause. And, and then, of course, there's very specific tactics, which are, if you're doing something that's really problematic for me, and I go into the conversation, and the only thing I want to do is make you wrong, or in some way bad, you're not going to be very receptive to moving into some kind of a problem-solving conversation. On the other hand, if I go into it with a sense of curiosity, wonder why you're doing what you're doing, and I convey my intent in wanting to bring it up, you know, I'm bringing this up because we work together every day, and I can't imagine we aren't better off 
having this conversation than just sweeping it under the rug and pretending this isn't happening. And because I'm actually invested in our relationship. And if you don't care about the relationship and you're not invested in it, and what you're actually wanting to do is figure out how to get rid of this person in your life, then you're probably not going to have productive conflict. Mm-hmm. I'm just reflecting on a situation that I hear again and again of a line manager saying things that the individual really isn't happy with and making decisions that, for example, always scheduling the meeting at nine o'clock at the morning, even yes. though yes. it's very clear that individual can only be at their desk at quarter past nine because of yes. the drop-off times. So then they're always late. Exactly. They're always late and there's this constant friction and the line manager is not one of those enlightened beings who just get what working parents need. Yeah. If you have someone like that and who yes. you could easily categorize as is just a difficult person, I know you yes. advocate not to say that, but let's face it, some people will think that's just a really difficult person. Of course. How do you deal with that? And can you convince me that I should pick up the conversation with that person? So because it might yes. be easier to bite your teeth. So let's, let's role play it for just a minute. You be the difficult, challenging boss, and I will be the working mom who is always late to the meeting because you've scheduled it at nine o'clock. Okay, let's just do that for a moment. So, Carol, you're late again. You've missed the start of the meeting. Yes, yes, I know. And actually, I'm really glad you brought it up because I've really been struggling with whether or not to say something about it myself. I feel terrible that I'm late all the time. And I am, I'm really challenged in trying to do two things that are really important to me. One is to be here when I need to be here and actually do my job and do it well. And the other is to fulfill my obligation of dropping off my child that I cannot do until nine o'clock. And, and I actually think I've been unfair to you because I wonder if you understood the issue for me more, if there would be any flexibility in starting the meetings at 9.15. Because if we started our meetings at 9.15, I would never be late. Okay, we can consider it. So you... Uh... <laughs> And boss, I understand that's ultimately your call in terms of when we have the meeting. And it pains me to think, to have, to make any stories up about you questioning my level of commitment. So whether you change the meeting or not, it also pains me to think of you continuing to be annoyed. And that's why I'm really glad you brought it up so that we could have this conversation. And you know, if it's not okay to start the meeting at 9.15, maybe there's some other solution. I don't know. Can you think of any other things we could do? We can start it at 9.15. You've convinced me. I think it's interesting what you've done there. You've talked about the impact on you, but also you disclosed something personal, which is quite exactly. tough. I mean, I was I was just taken, let's be honest, I was a very nice, mean boss. I couldn't play the role very well. But you, yeah. you did that disclosure of how it impacts you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something else that you're talking about in your book is about how it impacts that individual's goals. Exactly. 
Exactly. Because the let's, boss let's, let's, really, the boss wants you to be engaged and wants you to be motivated. Exactly. exactly. So people don't change for your reasons. They change for their own reasons. And very few people, even though it feels like lots of people do this, very few people get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I wonder how I can be a bigger jerk today than I was yesterday. That is not their intent. But until somebody helps them understand what the impact is of their behavior. Now, let's say you were tougher and you said, look, not my problem. You're just going to have to figure it out. I'm not moving the time of the meetings. We're having the meetings at nine o'clock. And then I would say, I've heard you repeatedly say that one of the things that's really important to you is the level of engagement and commitment from us. And while that is absolutely your call, I do want you to know that it's just a wee bit harder for me to be as committed and as all in under those circumstances. And, you know, I just think that you deserve to know. And it might feel like just too big a request. And I understand that. And I wish I had brought this up to you originally to say, you know, if we could just move the meetings 15 minutes, I wouldn't constantly be late. Mm. I'm going to challenge you, though. That is yes. all a very risky conversation to have. Okay. So what's risky about it? So someone doing that, I imagine, might be scared that the boss will hate them at the end of it and sack them. Why would I, as your boss, hate you when you're trying to make me a better boss? I mean, nobody knows how good a job I'm doing in managing you, except the people I'm managing. Now, it might be hard for them to hear that. They might be initially resistant. And that's where you have to go back to your intent. Mm. My intent is my intent in telling you this is that I want to do better by you and that I don't think I'm being fair to you and not telling you how you could do better by me as my boss. I think obviously I'm with you on, on yes, that yes. risk, but I think it's a question a lot of people will ask themselves. And I think the question is if you don't raise those challenges, if you don't stand up to conversations like that or or even microaggressions what is the consequence for you what's the impact of that going to be sure actually the impact of that is possibly worse than you not saying anything so i'll say two things to that one is silence is collusion i mean we learned that in this country big time last year and so when somebody is doing something that's actually harming harming the relationship harming the team, harming the organization, and you don't say anything, harming you, then what you essentially said, it's fine for you to keep doing that. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is that it's okay to admit the fear. You know, I'm pretty nervous about saying this to you. I recognize that I have a choice and that I'm taking a risk. And I'm hoping the outcome of my risk is that we'll have a stronger relationship, and I'll be even more committed than I already am. Mm. And what you've just done there is made a disclosure, have clo- closure, haven't you? You've been really honest about something that is difficult to be honest about. And yes. you told me that that disclosure has a significant impact on the strength of a relationship. 
Yes. Can you share a bit more? Is it generally a recommendation that we're as honest with people as possible about our inner feelings? Or is it a case of how does it work disclosing in order to deepen a relationship? Yeah. So disclosure in general is a fundamental building block, almost a cornerstone of moving relationship from superficial or dysfunctional along this continuum that we talk about in the book all the way to exceptional. But, you know, even if you're not trying to build an exceptional relationship, as you move along the continuum, you might just get to robust and functional. (laughs) And you're not going to move in that direction without disclosure. You're just not. However, disclosure, you mentioned that one of the concepts you really loved in the book was the 15% rule. And it's very useful to remember that when we talk about disclosure, we're not saying bleh. Just tell you everything that's going on for me. First of all, you'll freak yourself out. And second of all, you'll probably freak the other person out. But what you can do is think about the fact that there are three concentric circles. The circle in the middle is your safety zone, which is where you you don't even think twice about what you say. The circle on the very outside is your danger zone. In a million years, you would never consider saying that. And the zone in the middle is called your learning zone. This is basic fundamental learning theory. And we all know that as long as we stay in our safety zone, we don't learn anything new. That's why if you learn to ski, they don't start you on a double black diamond slope, but they don't leave you on the bunny slope. You have to go on to the slightly more challenging slope, okay? Now let's translate all that into what I'm talking about. You're going to have to step outside your safety zone. If you're going to learn how to be more interpersonally effective, you can decide you don't want to. You can decide you don't care, but it's a choice. Rather than I can't, I would encourage people to think in terms of I choose not to. First of all, I can't is very disempowering. I choose not to is very empowering. Second of all, When I used to tell my students, you're going to have to step outside your comfort zone, they used to say, oh my God, Carol, but the minute I'm outside my comfort zone, how do I know I'm not in my danger zone? How do I know that I haven't gone just way past the learning zone and into danger? And then that's where we came up with the 15% rule, which is step a little bit outside your comfort zone and then see what happens. It's unlikely to be catastrophic. And If it does go poorly, well, then you've learned something and then you have made it worse. If it goes well, then you can step 15% beyond that because your safety zone has redrawn a little bigger and then you can go 15%. And that is a phenomenon that we engage in with every relationship. So my comfort zone might look very different with my husband than it looks with my co-founder. And my danger zone might look very, uh, yeah, so it's actually about my comfort zone is individual and the way I've grown my, what 15%, my, my comfort zone, 15% is the relationship dependent, which is why I said earlier, if you're going to try some of this stuff that we talk about in the book, where at the end of every chapter, we have suggestions for what you can go do based on what you just read, then don't start with the most difficult and possible person in your life. And, you know, pick somebody where there's some a little something they do 
that kind of bugs you and start getting a little more comfortable in the process. And then maybe practice the growing 15% beyond the 15% a few times. And then go back and try just the 15% with somebody a little harder. And by the way, you'll know, you'll feel it. It's like a muscle. We're back to it's like a muscle you build. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really fascinating to me. And and I'm I am quite passionate about that disclosure, partly because of my, you know, what my own aims. So with Leaders Plus, we really want people to progress their careers. And we know the evidence is that if you have stronger relationships, diverse relationships, diverse networks, if you have a sponsor mm-hmm. and so on, that's when you're more likely to progress their career. But Absolutely. what you're saying is actually in order to have those meaningful relationships and make them go deeper, you have to disclose. And you have to step outside your comfort zone. You have to disclose and you have to take the risk of giving feedback like we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. When I started out with Leaders Plus, I really thought that was a total fraud um, because I had no... So we were working with a lot of private sector organizations. I had absolutely no idea about how they worked. Um, actually, maybe I shouldn't be saying that in case any of our partners are listening. But anyways, at the time, I didn't. And I think what really helped me establish a completely new network because I was in the education sector before. What helped me do is start a new network is exactly what you're saying, to have that personal disclosure. And I started it while I was on maternity leave. So I took my baby along because I was breastfeeding and I couldn't express. And that's, and I actually just bring my whole self and, you know, showing how I was struggling with a baby and at the same time saying, I really want to start a social enterprise to support parents to progress their careers, but yeah. I have no clue how to do it. And being yeah. open about this, I think that sure. actually in hindsight has helped to create those relationships that then help to launch it. So, yeah. So that's great because what that ties into is a concept we talk about, which is appropriate authenticity. What an important element of a good leader, appropriate authenticity is. First of all, who wants to work for somebody who never admits a mistake, who never takes any risks, who we're afraid of? You know, most people are like, yeah, not my poster child for who I'd want to work for. And by the way, I'm certainly not going to tell them when I've made a mistake. And now who wins? At least, you know, lack of disclosure leads to what we call progressive impoverishment. The closer you hold your cards, the closer I'm going to hold mine. And then the closer you're going to hold yours. And then there's not going to be a relationship. But appropriate authenticity also doesn't mean, let me give you an example. So I'm the VP of marketing. Three months in a row, we've lost market share. I can stand up in front of the group of my team and say, so, you know, I'm feeling really awful because that's the third month in a row we've lost share. I have no idea why. I probably shouldn't even be in this job. I'm really insecure. And I don't know what to tell you. That would be inappropriate authenticity. The appropriate authenticity version of that is to say, well, gang, it's the third month in a row we've lost share. I wish I could stand here and tell you that I've got all the answers, but I don't. I've got some ideas and I have never needed all of you more than to help us collectively figure out what's going on and what we're going to do about it. Now, compare those two messages. But saying nothing 
and by the way, everybody knows we just lost share for three months in a row, you know, only fuels the problem. The other thing I'll say about disclosure is that in the absence of data, people make stuff up. And that is such an important, just because you haven't said it doesn't mean people have started making all kinds of stories. So aren't you better off telling them the true story? Because the story they're going to make up is always going to be worse than the reality. Before we started the podcast, I told you that I was going to want to come back to something that I learned, you know, in my first career, I, I was in sales and marketing. I went to work for the largest industrial automation company in the world as a 22 year old in 1975. So yes, I am old. And I learned really quickly that if I was going to succeed, I better play the game the way the men played it. And at the top of the list of the rules was no place for feelings. You left those in the parking lot. And I got very good at it. And I learned how to never talk about what was, never talk about anything personal, never talk about my feelings, focus on the task, not really pay attention to the relationships and drive, 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 get things done. Now I was successful and I kept getting promoted. And of course, that just reinforced my belief that that was the way I needed to be. Now, fast forward 10 years. Now I've become the you know, area manager of a $50 million region, which is, you know, in those days was big business, was a lot of money. And I'm at an offsite with my six guys. At that point, I still hadn't found a woman, but I did fix that the next year. However, at the time of the anecdote, if I'm going to be accurate, they were six men. And I had an idea for something that I thought might be cool. And so I presented it and I got crickets. And then I was like, come on, you guys, this could be really cool. Crickets. So I got a little more animated. What's going on? Like, this could be so, what? This could be so cool. Nothing. So then finally, I'm like, come on, you guys, what is it with you? And one of them leans in, looks in my eye and says, Carol, is that water in the corner of your eye? Are you going to cry? And then he said, are you human after all? And then I burst out crying. And I said, you don't think I'm effing human? I use the full expletive, but I don't want to offend anybody on your podcast. And I tore up our agenda. And I said, I don't think there is anything more important for us to talk about than that. And we spent the next two days talking about who we were, why we were there, what we needed, what we needed from each other, how we were going to help each other accomplish what we wanted. And I, to this day, it was a watershed moment for me. And to this day, I believe that was the day we became a team. To this day, those guys would follow me anywhere. Those that are still with us, because I was pretty young still. And I'm really sure that was the day I became a leader. Hmm. Interesting. So, you know, Mark Twain used to say a cat never sits on a hot stove twice, but it never sits on a cold stove again either. So we have to update our mental models. And you mentioned previously when we spoke that the behaviors that helped you when you were at the lower rungs yeah. of your career weren't yeah. serving you when you were at the top level. Is that what you meant? That's exactly what I meant. They had stopped serving me long ago because they had stopped seeing me as a human being. 
and they were not feeling warm and fuzzy towards me. Mm, interesting. It was more and more isolating for me. And this might seem counterintuitive They, in feeling less connected to me because they didn't see me as human. They also felt less inspired and less motivated by me. So you tell me how you're a successful leader when people don't feel inspired and motivated by you. Mm, that's very true. And it's interesting how you explained the context in that you wanted to emulate the typical stereotypical male example. And by doing that, you undermined yourself. Yes. And you've yes. given away this biggest power that you have, which is to create meaningful relationships. Right. And if I had burst out crying two months after I started, I would have never gotten where I got. And if this was a brand new team I'd never worked with and burst out crying, I don't know if it would have gone as well. So, you know, it's not a switch. It's first of all, it's not like a, you should always do. It's very contextual. And the problem is we never test it. And so then we never learn. That was incredibly lucky for me that he actually said that. Mm. And, if, you know, and by then I'd been paying a big cost for a while. I could have paid much lower cost much sooner had mm -hmm. I been testing a little bit at a time, 15% rule. Interesting. And it's also interesting to me from the perspective of building relationships with people who are different. Because yes. they obviously have a different gender. They may not yeah. have been different in other ways. But is there anything that you've learned in your research yes. about building relationships with people who are quite different from you? Yes. You know, the course was called Interpersonal Dynamics. I always thought it should have been called Connecting Across Differences because it's very easy to connect with people that are just like you. I think just like you have your life experience, a little more challenging to connect with people that are very different. And this is where the concept of inquiry and curiosity in developing stronger relationships really becomes important, which as to the extent that I can remain open to the possibility that what I believe I know about you is not what I know about you, <laughs> or it's some version of a spun image that you believe is what you need to show in order to be credible. If I make it okay for you to drop the facade a little bit, then by being genuinely curious about you and by taking the first step in being vulnerable because I can't ask you to be vulnerable if I'm not willing to be vulnerable. And by the way, the higher status position, the more power you have, the more important it is for you to initiate the vulnerability because starting in a lower power position and being the first one to be vulnerable is a lot to ask. So as a white person, I always start in terms of vulnerability with a person of color. And as a more experienced leader, I always start before I ask a leader who's only starting out in their career. And of course, they are more likely to say, oh, wow, like if it was okay for you to share that with me, then maybe it's okay for me to share this little bit with you. And again, I do a little 15%, they do a little 15%, I do 15% more, they do 15% more. So it is incumbent in the higher power position people to go first. And it doesn't mean that you have to be determined by that. You may be influenced by that. And you can be pretty gutsy too. 
it's also the reason I started Leaders in Tech because these are all CEO founders. And if I'm actually going to have the impact that I'm hoping to have in the world with this work, then the more people in higher power positions understand and learn and embrace these principles, the better shot I have at, you know, creating a different dynamic and a critical mass of people who are armed with these tools. Mm, absolutely. Um, I am coming to the end of our time, unfortunately, and I'm really curious if, if there's someone listening to this who yes. has a reasonably warm relationship you talk yes. about coffee with someone in a different yes. part of the organization yes you would really like to deepen that relationship because it yes. leads to their long-term career progression what are yes. two or three practical small things that they might be able to do next week so the first thing i'd say is pick up the book and read the chapter on elena and sanjay <laughs> and follow the arc of their relationship because that's exactly the scenario that we lay out we lay out lots of different scenarios father daughter as you know you know a married couple two buddies, two girlfriends. And the first place to start is with a 15% disclosure and see where that goes. And that disclosure could be, you know, I'd really like to get to know you better. I really have appreciated what I've learned from you. I'd like to learn even more from you. I, I'm fascinated by the way you look at X or Y. And, you know, some people might say, oh my God, that sounds cheesy or whatever. And then you could say, you know, and I feel a little weird even asking you. But I also know that if I don't ask you, then, you know, it'll never happen. And see how they respond. If they respond with a small, we also might think of calling that an emotional bid, which is, you know, being a little bit vulnerable in making an ask. It's also another piece of it in your three steps is inquiry. And conveying to the other person that you really want to get to know them better. You know, there's so much, you know, I constantly find myself when I hear you speaking about X or Y, so intrigued with how you came to understand that or came to be there. And then check on how, in the book, we talk about two antenna. One antenna is picking up the signals on what's going on for you. The other antenna is trying to pick up signals on what's going on for the other person and be checking your antenna and be testing both your inquiry and your disclosure as you're checking in with your antenna. And don't ask for too much too quickly. Either you're playing a long game, which is more likely to create a much more meaningful relationship, or you're playing a very short-term transaction game, and that's not gonna build exceptional relationships. Mm. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much, Carol. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Now, I'm sure lots of people will want to find out more. You've got resources, you've got obviously the book. There may be other things that you're doing at the moment. Where can people find out more about you and about your work? So to find out more about the work and the book and the activities that and resources that Verena just mentioned, go to www.connectandrelate.com. The name of the book is Connect Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues, not academic and relevant to anybody in your life. And you can order from that website and you can also download all these suggestions on how to use the book under activities, I think. To find out more about me and leaders in tech and some of the other things that I do, you can go to www.leadersintech.com. 
leadersintech.org, leaders in tech, all one word. And there you'll learn more about our nonprofit and a little bit more about me. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. I am delighted that you joined me for this conversation. I hope it's been useful. I'm really grateful for everyone who's been sending me messages via LinkedIn, via Twitter, um, to tell them about the impact the podcast has made. That just really makes me so happy because I'm doing this to make a difference. Um, so, yeah, I love to hear from you. Please keep the messages coming. Tell me what you like. Tell me who you want to hear from and any thoughts that you have. Um, if you want to do me a favour, then definitely to share this podcast. We really want to grow it. We've got about 800 listeners at the moment per episode. I would love to help 10,000 people with this podcast. So please do share far away. Big, big fun to in advance. And don't forget, if you want to join the supportive community of fellows or ambitious parents with your children, then you should go to leadersplus.org uk forward slash fellowship to register your interest. There are some subsidized places available for those in financial circumstances. Until next time, have a wonderful day.